I don't think that we've done the word, the song uh, known before. It has been my favorite song since it came out. Um, just the first time I heard it, it really spoke to me. Um, it's not one other, one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known, and loved by God. It's a pretty powerful statement. Amazingly powerful statement. Thank you. This morning, um, we're going to uh, go back to Matthew chapter 9, where we were spending a little time last time, last time we were together. And as we do, I just want to remind you, these are not going to be on the screen, so there's no crib notes here. I just want to remind you a little, a little bit about what we've been talking about with the Holy Spirit. Okay? When Christ describes the coming of the gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, he's very, very specific. He names about three things. He speaks of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God being inside, not outside of the believer. New Testament will we'll fill that out. We'll talk about it over and over again. We'll keep repeating it and, and, and sort of establishing it more strongly. That when you become a believer, when you accept Jesus as your Lord, when you accept His leadership as your only leadership, the Holy Spirit speaks in, not out. Everybody has the Holy Spirit outside. Everyone has the Holy Spirit outside. The Holy Spirit is trying to influence the entire planet all the time. Good, bad, or indifferent. He's out there talking to the world. But for the believer, for the person who accepts the leadership of God, that leadership comes from the inside out and begins to speak to your heart, begins to speak in that, that voice that's so soft and so insistent that it cannot be ignored. Number two, Holy Spirit's job, according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's job is to lead you into all truth. How much truth? All truth. So the truth that you don't want to face? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The truth that will warm your heart and transform the way you think about God? Absolutely. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth. From the inside out on the believer, He's leading us to all truth. And the last thing, the last thing of the three... When the Holy Spirit gets you to that next place, when the Holy Spirit takes you to that place in your life where He's challenging you with a new step, a new thing you need to face, a truth that you haven't really wanted to deal with, uh, an issue you haven't wanted to step across the line on, when He brings you to that place, you're ready for it. Okay? Okay? So the Holy Spirit is that voice inside of the believer who is leading the believer into all truth. And when you arrive at that place, ministry call, a a, a challenge to speak up, a challenge to face a sin that you've been harboring, a challenge to deal with something in your life. When the Holy Spirit brings you to that place, He brings you to that place because you are ready for it. Okay? All right. So uh, keep those in mind as we we open to, to... Matthew, I was going to say Mark, chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're at the end of the chapter, beginning in verses 35, 36, and 37. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. Excuse me. 
And we're going to close out this and move into the next chapter. There are, remember, there are no chapter divisions in Scripture. So one leads into the other and flows very, very specifically and nicely. Textually, contextually, they flow right in together. So we're picking it up in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages in that area. So what area are we talking about? Does anybody remember where he is? He's been crossing back and forth a a, a body of water. So where is he? He's in Galilee. He's in the north. He's up in the northern part. The northern part has has been a part that Israel has been resettling since the Assyrians, 700 B.C., took the ten tribes away. Since Sennacherib came down and took ten northern tribes off back to Assyria and brought Assyrians and others into that region, they have been trying to resettle this area. And it's only actually been in about the last 200 years that they've been slowly getting back in. A more conservative group of Jewish people have moved into this region. Um, a people who are who are wanting to move away from Jerusalem and all of the the weird things that are going on with their faith in Jerusalem, with the the buying and selling of the priesthood, with the kings who are who are not all, not really Jewish kings that they're 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 puppets of the Romans, and so they're trying to get out of that mess, and so they're moving out into the hills to be away from the distractions and the trouble and the and the, the the division that's going on. And this group that's moved up there, they're a little more conservative than your average person of the day. Jesus is born in this portion of the land in Nazareth, which is even a little further out from these things. But the other piece of this is that all around this lake are the remnants of various cultures. There are Assyrians still there. There are lots of Greeks and Greek influences still there. There are lots of Romans. In fact, the Romans are building a new city there. Lots of influences around this lake. So you have the clash of the philosophies and thinking and cultures and politics of the day all around this little lake. 13 miles high, north to south, 8 miles wide, east to west. All around this lake... Jesus begins to travel. The Bible says he traveled through all the towns and villages in that area. I was doing some research trying to find out how many that was. Best estimate I have is a couple hundred villages. So about 200 villages around the Sea of Galilee at that point that Jesus could call on, that he could go to, that he could reach out to. I think the all here is not saying he went to every single one. I think it's saying he's going everywhere he can. He went to all the villages around that area, teaching in the synagogues, This is why I don't think he went to everyone, because there were not synagogues in the Greek and Roman cities, necessarily. So teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. So is this kind of sounding familiar? As we've been going through Matthew, these are kinds of the pieces that we found. Jesus arrives, he goes up on a hill, and he begins preaching and teaching about the kingdom. And as it begins to to lay on some new understanding of the way the world should be understood and the way religion should be, should be impacted, impacting the world and impacted by it, as he begins to lay these things out, he's still doing that same thing. He's on task. He's very focused. He's not changing his message. 
Jesus' messaging is very specific. Here's the good news of the kingdom. Here's the good news of the kingdom. Here's the good news of the kingdom. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me illustrate that this way. Let me illustrate this this way. Let me illustrate that. It's the good news about the kingdom. We're just talking about one thing. It's the good news about the kingdom. It's interesting how much we've gotten into that we've kind of shaped around that idea. I wonder how I wonder how focused the church might be if we sort of narrowed that down to what can we say that is strictly the good news about the kingdom? If we pulled in the reins a little bit, would we tighten up kind of what we talked about? Would we talk about fewer things, maybe with more intensity? He heals every kind of disease and illness. This is sort of the testimony of Jesus' authority and power. This is what Matthew has been doing from the beginning of this book. He's been telling us Jesus is the Messiah. Let me show you how. Remember that leper? He healed that guy. Remember that centurion? He healed his servant. You remember that guy that in Gennesaret? He healed that demon-possessed crazy man in Gennesaret. And he starts just keep, keeps on laying out the picture here that Jesus, Jesus is actually the Messiah. He is actually God. And when confronted by this in the healing of a young man who's been lowered down through Peter's roof, when confronted by the Pharisees, who does he think he is? He's saying that he can forgive sins. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, which is easier? To forgive the man's sins or to say to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Watch the word authority in Matthew. Has authority to forgive sins. Rise up, take your bed and walk. Jesus goes to the villages and the towns all around the area. He's preaching the kingdom of God, touching lives, healing people, leaving villages whole in his wake. Hundreds of villages. Three cultures, Greek, Roman, and Jewish. One voice. One voice. Hundreds of villages. Three cultures. One voice. Is this the way you'd do it? If this was your assignment, if your assignment was to evangelize the region around Galilee, would you pick one guy to do it? Would you say, oh yeah, this could be accomplished by one guy? Well, if you had Jesus to pick from, it might help you. That guy might, might pull it off. One voice. One voice. It's interesting as Jesus is watching, he's, he's going around. The Bible says that he's going through these villages. Something happens to him. He begins to be touched by the vacancy in the eyes of the people he's talking to. He begins to, to be touched by the disillusionment in the eyes of the people he's talking to. He was beginning to be touched by the, the lack of understanding of, of how truly a relationship with God is good news in the people he's talking to. And the Bible says he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So why don't you stop for a sec and recognize Jesus has compassion on you. Anybody here dealing with personal ignorance? Don't say anything out loud. Just inside, inside voice now. Okay. Anybody dealing with a space in your life where you say, I just don't understand this. I don't get this. I don't, I, I can't, I can't grasp that. 
Anybody struggling with religion? Anybody struggling with the, the combative nature of people who claim to follow the same God? Anybody dealing with religious contradictions in your own head or in your own life or in your own practice? Anybody struggling against the culture that you're dealing with every day? The Greeks and the Romans are climbing through your windows and into your television and through your radio and they're always at you all day long. You hear the, the cultures all around you speaking into your life and bringing you things you didn't really want in your life. There is information I cannot unlearn. Don't you wish you could actually erase some stuff? Things I was taught that sticks in my head. Things I've seen on television that I wish I'd never seen. Commercials. It is getting to the point where I don't think I've had my... Brenda and I have gotten stuck on uh, on, uh, English television on Netflix. They speak with much better English. The the ones we watch seem to be about characters who are at least 200 years old. They seem to be more tidy towards one another. And there are no commercials to embarrass me. It's interesting, isn't it? I find myself having to, to turn the radio off during the news. They'll tell me something I don't want to hear. And now I have this information I can't unlearn or unhear. Around the Jewish culture that is in Galilee, that Jesus is trying to encourage and strengthen, is a Roman culture and a Greek culture and remnants of the Assyrian culture, all of which are feeding into the the lives of the people who are trying to figure out how to follow God. And each of those bring their philosophies. And each of those bring their, their own approach. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The Greeks and the Romans are not in charge of influencing the culture of the world. You guys are. Let me show you how. You go and you, you, you teach and you preach the kingdom of God as good news. The kingdom of God is good news. The kingdom of God is good news. And Jesus has compassion because when he looks out across the, the, the landscape and he says the kingdom of God is good news, some people say, no, 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 the kingdom of God is frightening news. If he comes right now, I might not be ready. If he were to show up today, that would really scare me. I don't want to look at him right now. I don't have my stuff together and I'm not sure it's okay if he, if he comes. And people are saying the kingdom of God is a fallacy. It's not good news. It's a lie. There's no kingdom of God. There's just us. There's just this. Enjoy your life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Some people are saying, well, I wish the kingdom of God were good news. And Jesus isn't looking at any of them with disdain. Do you notice? The Bible doesn't say, and he disdained them for their confusion. And their ignorance. They should have known by now. They should have figured this out. It's not there. It simply says, He had compassion on them. He felt for them. He ached for them. He was up nights praying for them. He worried about them. 
People whose faces he had seen in villages as he was walking by. People he'd met as just in passing in some villages he was reaching out and preaching the gospel. The guy on the front row, right in the middle of him, who started crying when he said the kingdom of God was good news. He stuck in Jesus' head. The little, little kid whose hair he tussled. Who was a little afraid that this messianic character was there, stuck in Jesus' mind. The people who looked so confused when he told them that God loved them broke Jesus' heart. He had compassion on them. He'd gone through the villages preaching the good news and and healing everybody who could be healed of their illnesses. But there was a brokenness so much deeper that he wanted to touch and he felt compassion for them. He said, they look like sheep without a shepherd, wandering aimlessly, not knowing where to go. You know, being called a sheep, it's really never been a compliment. Maybe only only be one dumber animal on the planet, that's a domesticated turkey, but (laughs) a sheep's a pretty dumb creature. Without leadership, they struggle. Without guidance, they'll eat the wrong thing and die. They will flee water when they're dying of thirst because it's rippling too much. It's never been a compliment when God called us his sheep. The only compliment in it is that he loves his sheep. And he feels compassion toward them. And he looked out across the masses of people he'd touched in the last few weeks. And he had compassion on them. And his heart broke for them. And he spoke out to his disciples to them. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great. The harvest is great. The Roman culture had brought the Roman bath. Romans loved their bathhouses. And it wasn't just because they were so interested in being clean. A lot of things went on. Things that were acceptable in their culture that were just breaking Jesus' heart. The Greeks and the Romans were not a afraid or concerned about pedophilia. The Greeks and the Romans taught that God would burn you forever. The gods would burn you forever. The Greeks and the Romans had a pantheon of gods who were like spoiled babies and nasty humans. And that's what they were teaching people. Jesus looked at that group and he said, the harvest, the harvest is great. We look at those situations in our culture and we say, we're up against it and there's no chance. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. They all know that's empty. 
They all know that's meaningless. They all know they're worshiping rocks and sticks. They get it. They're not dumb. And they'd like a different way to do life. The harvest is great. The harvest is great. Our, our lives, our culture, our society, the, the Western world has become more Greco-Roman than it's probably ever been before. The harvest is great. And then he says that thing that preachers say that nobody wants to talk about, but the workers are few. Workers are few. You know, Jesus has just been going around every town by himself. I mean, he's got his disciples. They're good guys, but they're more bodyguards than helpers. You know, the role of the disciples is to keep crowds from, from crushing Jesus, really. They're not preaching. I mean, they, are, they don't even understand what this really is about. They're as much a part of the sheep without a shepherd as anybody else, except they actually have a shepherd, and they're still kind of lost. So the harvest is, harvest is rich. The harvest is plentiful. We need a few more harvesters. We need some workers. Workers are few. So pray. You notice Jesus' answer is not, so get up out of your chair and get to work. It's not what he says. He says, guys, look at the harvest. It's, it's ready. There are not enough workers. So pray. He doesn't say work harder. He says, pray. It's an interesting answer because we all expect the guilt-ridden one that's in our mind. So, okay, I better get to work and talk, start talking to somebody. Right? All of us, preacher included, when we read the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, we get a little tight spot. We kind of clinch a little. We get a little nervous about that. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Uh-oh, he's going to start looking at me now. Jesus says, so pray. What he, what he says is an interesting statement of faith. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Aren't you glad you're not in charge of the harvest? Can you just breathe out right now? Because some of you have been holding your breath for the last five minutes. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. It's his field. Those are his kids. We know what he feels. We just saw it in Jesus. He feels compassion. You know, when you see one, you see the other, right? You remember that? He feels compassion for our broken, messed up world. If you've been reading now Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're on to Joshua, maybe you've even gotten to Judges, you're wondering where that compassion is. Remember culture. Remember national law. Remember you're looking at different things. If we need to talk about this, maybe now you start Wednesday night prayer meeting back up so you can we can have that conversation.
He feels compassion. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He feels really great compassion for these people that he will send more workers into whose fields? His fields. He's in charge of the harvest. It's his field. Pray for more workers. Pray for more workers. Now, if we stopped right there, the disciples could go, said my prayers, we're good. Right? Remember, chapter markers are not in the original text. So when then there was 10. Do you remember how 10 starts? Don't look ahead, you cheaters. 10 says, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them what? Authority. So here's what's interesting. Jesus says, the harvest is ready. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his field. And then he gathers his disciples together, the 12. There are still 12. Judas is part of this. He gathers the disciples together. He's been a one-man show up to this point, And now he gathers the disciples together. It's interesting because the last time he was gathering the disciples together was at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, remember? He went up on the mountain, gathers his disciples around him, and a great crowd came and all that preaching took place, remember? And now, as we enter into chapter 10, we're, we're coming off this statement, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into his field. He gathers his disciples. Now, do you assume that the disciples have started praying when Jesus tells them to pray? Two of you think so. One says absolutely not, and the rest of you will not vote. This is a regular problem here. A lack of interest in voting. We got you electronic ballots. If you could like punch a little button on the pew in front or in the seat in front of you, could you vote and then it would go on the screen? No one would know it was you. Would that be okay? I think that the disciples, some of them prayed and some of them didn't. You know how I think why I think that? Because sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And I think they were like us. So some of them were probably starting to pray about this need for workers in the harvest. And maybe if Jesus kept talking about it and pushed the point hard enough, maybe they even all got to the point of praying for workers in the harvest. You know what prayer does to you when you start asking God for something like that? It starts to realign your thinking about those things, right? Prayer starts to line you up with the will of God in His understanding. Prayer changes the one praying as much as anything else. So what I think happens is the disciples begin to say, yeah, I guess maybe he does need some have a point. He's the only one preaching. He's going to all these villages. We're following him around like a bunch of sheep. And then he preaches. And then we just go to the next village and he does it again. And all we're really doing is acting as bodyguards here. Maybe he's asking us to get in the game. Maybe he's asking us to get in the game. Now, remember who these guys are. Would you get those guys in the game? This is not even a farm team. They're not that good. This is a little league baseball team at best. This is the bad news bears. If you're old enough to remember the, what, the 80s? If they 
young person next to you doesn't know what that is, you can explain it to them later. (laughs) These guys, including Judas, are about to be sent out on a mission from God into the harvest that is ready, that is waiting. And there's no way they're ready. Look at the person next to you again. Go ahead, look at them. Go ahead, look at the person next to you. I can see you guys. I can see whether you're doing it or not now. Lights are on. Did they look ready? Don't say it. Inside voice again. Look at the person next to you. Try the other one. Maybe the person in front of you or behind you, maybe that person will be ready. Jesus calls the disciples. He calls them around him and he gives them authority. Authority. This word has been stated. This word keeps getting out there. This keeps coming out as a description of Jesus. Jesus has authority. He has authority like Moses. He has authority like God. The the guy is in charge of wind and rain. He has authority to overwhelm and cast out demons. He has authority over illnesses, even leprosy. He has authority over a centurion's servant who is miles away. And the centurion's the one who recognized and said, Hey, I get authority and you, my friend, have authority. Just say so and it'll be taken care of. Nobody has ever had faith like this in all of Israel. But this guy, this guy's amazing. And he gives authority to the disciples. Authority to the disciples. And then... Oh, sorry. I forgot I was was in there. I better skip it. He sends them out with authority to cast out evil spirits. Do you want that authority? Does that freak you out a little? Uh Uh-huh. I've been, never mind. And to heal every kind of disease and illness. So he says, okay, guys, your turn. I'm giving you authority. Now, I don't know how that happened. Maybe he breathed on them. He does that later, right? Uh, Maybe he laid hands on them and prayed for each one of them. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you authority over evil spirits. I'm giving you authority over illness. I am giving you authority over disease. Now go. Knock yourselves out. He spends the rest of the chapter explaining what they're going to do. But this is all I want you to catch right at the moment. They were disciples. When the, when the, when the scripture, when Matthew starts to tell us their names, he changes the name. They've gone from being followers to those who have been sent. They were disciples. They were just following Jesus around, right? Bah, 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 bah. And now they're being sent. Now they're apostles. They're the ones who have authority to speak on Jesus' behalf. Two feet to 24 feet. This is the day it happens. This is the day when Jesus multiplies himself by implanting the Holy Spirit in the disciples. You say, wait, it didn't say that. The Bible says, the Bible says that they have authority. They now are traveling, traveling 
authority spots. They're a heaven hotspot. They go into a village and they preach with the same authority of Jesus. You know how they got it? Indwelling the Holy Spirit. They go into a, a village and they have authority over evil spirits and illnesses and diseases. You know how they got it? Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know how I know this? I've read the rest of the story. I've gotten all the way through the Gospels to the book of Acts. And I remember what the disciples are doing in the book of Acts. You notice it's calling them disciples again. And they're sitting up in the upper room. It's quiet. It's dark. They're kind of scared. A lot's going on. And Romans have been crazy. And they've seen weird things. And people are saying Jesus is alive. And then he shows up in the room. An interesting thing happens. Jesus breathes on the disciples. It's Genesis 1. A new thing is being born. He breathes on the disciples. And a different spark lights up inside of them. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, Jesus has been resurrected, reaffirmed, and carried off into heaven. And the disciples see tongues of fire land on everybody in the room. And then one hits them. And you know what they're called then? Apostles. See, Matthew's looking back at the story. He's looking back at this event and he's realizing and he's informing us of what took place. Something changed that day. They went from being disciples to being the ones sent. Now, it seems to me they go right back to being disciples as soon as they come back to Jesus. They come back with great reports of the things that they've done and the amazing stuff that's happened. Did you realize that Jesus prepared them for Pentateuch? Did you realize that in this event, when Jesus sends out the 12, he prepares them for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will take place in Pentateuch? Peter had been practicing preaching while he was traveling. And now when he stands up that day, when, the, when people are, are hearing them in their own language, when all of these guys are speaking and everyone's hearing their own language, Peter stands up. And he preaches. Well, he had preached before. He had been through villages around Galilee on Jesus' behalf, filled with his authority, preaching. Jesus gave them a little taste of what was to come. And there they are on that day in Acts 2, doing this. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into his fields. Jesus gathers the twelve. And he said, I don't know who else is going. Well, I actually might. But you guys, you're now first stringers. Because I'm giving you my authority. You guys are now the starting squad. Because I'm giving you my authority. I'm filling you with my spirit. I told you three things when we started this sermon. That the Holy Spirit, when He comes on you, becomes an internal voice. When you surrender to God, the Spirit of God speaks from within, not just from without. And that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. 
We know that from the disciples' perspective, we see them growing as they, as they spend more time with Jesus. Their, their understanding of truth grows. And in the New Testament, as they begin to write those documents to the churches, that expanding understanding continues. And we have the, we have the mature picture of these guys when they've written the gospels and they've written the letters. And if the Holy Spirit has led them to go out on the field as a starting team, they're ready. I had the opportunity to talk about coaching this week. Just came up in a conversation in the trailer over there, actually. Just a, just a passing conversation. It wasn't more than probably a minute or two. But it made me think of this. I don't know how many of you have played sports and had coaches, but a coach multiplies themselves in their players. I had, I've had good coaches and bad coaches. I learned to play golf from a guy who had only one arm. Yeah. He had a hook on this arm. Just stand up here so you can see it. He had a hook on this hand that he had figured out how to... He actually made a little fitting for his golf clubs. It was just a couple of inner tubes, actually, that he screwed onto a club, and he would hook the hook through there. Take the hook in his other, take the club in his other hand, and he would swing with that hook in that hand. But in order to hit a golf ball, he had to set the golf ball out in front of his foot. How many of you play golf? Where does the golf ball go? Between your feet, right? Starts at your big toe on your left foot and moves back if you're right-handed. Correct. I learned to hit a golf ball about four inches past my left foot. Because the guy who taught me only knew one way to hit a golf ball. And so I learned to hit a golf ball way out there. I had the the most wicked hook, or slice, I mean. Because I'm hitting the golf ball out there, and by the, you, you can't, it's hard to hold a golf club straight that long. Pretty soon it starts to go back, and when it goes back, the club goes that way. Your coach duplicates themselves in you. Right? doesn't matter who taught you. If they taught you the right way, you learn good practices. If they taught you the wrong way, you learn bad practices. Jesus has been coaching these guys all along. Watch how I do this. Listen to what I say here. Watch this. And now he releases them for their first try. Watch one. Try one. This is try one. They go out for a few weeks and they come back. And they have the most magnificent stories. Even the demons, even the demons fell under our authority. They couldn't believe it was happening to them. Here's the interesting thing. Because of, because of those guys and all that have followed, There are about a billion Christians in the world. So the church went from two feet to two billion. Two billion. Two billion. Are there enough workers for the harvest? 
That's two billion feet. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into his field. If there was ever a time when the world around us needed us to pray, it's now. We have had the good fortune of being born into a nation that accepts our beliefs in large part. You are free to come and go as you please. No one cares that you go to church. In fact, probably people care less now whether or not you go to church than in all of American history. But as the world has become more secular... The church's role has become more important. And so I ask you today to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his field. And if he says, it's you, know you're ready. Because he won't, he won't take you unless you're ready. If he brings you face to face with your friend and he says now's the time, it's the time. If he has you knocking on doors in your neighborhood, don't worry about it. It's the time. If he has you just loving on people who are hurting, don't be frightened. It's the time. And if he's brought you to that point, there's a reason for it. Now, if you're looking at, in your head at somebody, if there's a picture of your family member in your head and you're saying there's no way they'll listen to me, that's okay. That's okay. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his field. They're his kids. It's his field. There's someone they'll listen to. Jesus looks on our world not with disdain, but with compassion. When we watch the news, when we hear what's going on, let's take the attitude of Jesus and compassionately pray for workers in the harvest. Father, I ask that you would do just that in the harvest in Rockland, Roseville, Sacramento, the region around us, that you would send workers into the harvest. If that is me, okay. If that is the call for any of us, help us to understand that with that call is the empowerment to fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen.